So, the last three words of Genesis were coffin in Egypt. So we started off in Eden, where God's people were in God's presence in the land that they were supposed to be in, having life and life abundantly. But by the end of the story, uh, death has entered the world. They're not in Eden anymore. In fact, they're not even in Canaan anymore. They're in Egypt. Um, And what is Israel's status in Egypt? What are they? Slaves. And who is like sort of responsible for that? Yeah, Joseph. Uh, Remember at the end of Genesis, the people run out of food, they run out of land, and they run out of livestock to use to get food from Pharaoh. And so Joseph's solution is sell yourselves to Pharaoh. Become servants is what most of our translations say. Um, By the way, a lot of translations, anytime you see the word servant, it's really the word slave. A lot of translations have begun to do that, use the word servant rather than slave, just because in our nation's history, slavery was kind of this really bad, big deal. Um, Biblical slavery and American slavery are two pretty different concepts. Um, But because that's kind of a sensitive issue, sometimes translations prefer to put servant rather than slave. I don't like that. I don't think that's helpful personally. But um, here they are in Egypt, slaves to the Pharaoh. And in Exodus chapter 1, new Pharaohs have come and gone. And one Pharaoh arises, and it says that he doesn't remember Joseph. Now, that probably doesn't mean that this Pharaoh is a really bad history student. It probably means, okay, this guy knows who Joseph was, and he knows who the Israelites are, but what? doesn't care right he doesn't he doesn't know joseph probably in that sense he probably knows about him but he doesn't care and so he really puts the israelites to hard labor the israelites in egypt begin growing exponentially they come to egypt with only 70 people in their entire nation but they start multiplying and being fruitful while they're in egypt um Exodus 1, 7 says the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong and the land was filled with them. What does that sound like? Yeah, you remember uh, Adam's original command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? Sounds like that's happening and, and it sounds like that's happening specifically with Abraham's line. Abraham is becoming this great nation like God promised him to, but that threatens this Pharaoh. And so this Pharaoh um, really puts Israel under the thumb, puts them to hard labor, um, making bricks without straw, uh, treating them poorly. And what does he begin to do to all of the Israel, Israelite baby boys? Yeah, throws them in the river to drown them so that the nation stops growing the way that it has been. Now, there's one family uh, who is living during this time, and they have a son, and they want to, uh, uh, you know, protect the son from Pharaoh. And so they wind up putting the son in a basket. They float him down a river. What's that guy's name, by the way? Moses. Who finds Moses? Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses will grow up in privilege in the household of Pharaoh. Remember the story that Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby, and then um, Moses' mother winds up being able to be the nurse, is, kind of becomes an employee of Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, who's going to help me take care of this baby, says Pharaoh's daughter. And then uh, Moses' sister goes, oh, probably that, that woman would be a good choice. <laughs> and so his mother winds up being able to care for him. Um, Moses grows up in Egypt for 40 years. Um, after 40 years, uh, he, it's put on his heart to go visit his kinsmen, uh, the Israelites. He sees their affliction. He sees how terribly they've been treated. And particularly, he sees an Egyptian mistreating one of his Israelite brothers. What does Moses do to that Egyptian? Kill him. Yeah, he kills him. And then he buries the guy in the sand to try to cover it up. But the next day, he tries to visit the Israelites again, and two of them are quarreling, and Moses tries to break it up, and one of the Israelites turns and looks at him and says, 
Uh, are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses decides it's time to get out of there. He flees to a land called Midian, and there he begins working for a shepherd named Jethro, and he marries one of Jethro's daughters named Zipporah. And uh, after he has shepherded in Midian for another 40 years, so how old is Moses now? 80. 80. After he's shepherded in Midian another 40 years, he takes the sheep one day and is traveling near a mountain that is called Horeb, spelled like this. Horeb is another, it's a name, uh, this mountain has another name. Anybody know what it is? Mount Sinai. Yeah, Sinai. He's traveling near Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai. And as he is walking by with his flock, he looks, and what does he see? Yeah, it's a bush. Um, Really, technically, it's a thorn bush, and, and, and the bush is on fire, but what is not happening to the bush? Yeah, it's not being consumed by the fire. So it's on fire, but it's not being burned up. the, The fire is not affecting the bush at all. And whenever he turns and looks, um, it says in X, if you're, you should open up to Exodus three for a moment. Whenever he sees this, um, it says in Exodus 3, 2, who appears to him? Who is in the bush in Exodus 3, 2? The angel of the Lord. Interesting. Who have you always thought about being in the bush? Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so, but it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Um. And then Moses turns aside to go look at this. And um, when in verse four, it says when the who saw him. So originally the figure in the bush is called the angel of the Lord. Now, what is this figure being called? Just Lord. You guys know if you have all caps, you see see in your Bibles how L-O-R-D is all caps. Sometimes in the Bible, you'll see it like this, but sometimes you see this. If whenever you see all caps Lord, this um, symbolizes God's personal name Yahweh. Sometimes translations will do Jehovah. I think if, um, Zach, you have a KJV. Does it do Lord or Jehovah there? Lord. It does Lord. Okay. Uh, sometimes they'll do Jehovah instead, um, but it stands for God's personal name Yahweh. If you have just L O R D normal like this, uh, this is just the word Lord. Um, but whenever you have it all caps, it's, it's God's personal name. So now uh, it's been called the angel of Yahweh. It's also been called Yahweh. Um, Moses starts to walk towards the bush, but what does he have to do first? Take off his sandals. Yeah, take off his sandals because the land is holy ground. Uh, and then this figure in verse 6 speaks to him and says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So now, what is this figure being called? God. God, okay. I thought it was an angel. Interesting. Um, God speaks to him from the burning bush, and, and uh, throughout this conversation, God says, I'm going to send you to be a deliverer to your people in Egypt. And what is Moses' response? Does Moses say, yeah, I'm ready? He makes every excuse he can possibly make. You know, first of all, he says, well, whenever I go, uh, they're going to ask who sent me and what should I say? And God reveals his name, uh, Yahweh, which means I am. um, I am who I am. I was who I was. I will be who I will be. uh, The great I am, Yahweh. Um, These are the the same, by the way. Anytime that God shows up as Yahweh throughout Scripture, it's the I am name that he gave to Moses in the burning bush. Uh, And so, okay, who am I going to say sent me? Tell them I am sent you. Um, Well, another issue is that, you know, I I don't speak very well. I stutter a little bit. I'm not very articulate. Okay, I'll send your brother Aaron with you. Okay, fine. You know, I don't want to. 
Too bad. <laughs> so um, God promises to be with Moses. He promises to give him signs and wonders to perform before Pharaoh and before the Israelites to deliver the people. Um, and so then, eventually, Moses obeys and Moses heads to Egypt. Whenever he gets there, the situation for the Israelites gets worse. Moses appears to Pharaoh and says, God has spoken and has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, why should I listen to you? And Pharaoh makes the work even harder on the Israelites. And at this point, God responds by sending what upon the Egyptians? Yeah, um... If we were in a little bit of a deeper Bible class, I would maybe push back on that a bit. Um, in the text that we go through in, in Exodus that, that talks about these ten, we call them the ten plagues, that word is not really used. That's not really a vocabulary word that's used throughout this, this part of, of, the, of the book. Um, but that's kind of a helpful way to think about them. The term that's used is signs and wonders, and there's actually 12 of them. Um, but we don't really have time to go about it in that direction. That's a little bit too much of a time-consuming thing. So let's just use this idea of 10 plagues, and we'll start walking through it. Yes, ma'am? Um, I found a little research on the plague, and she said that it's the arise of the reason that God um, chose Pharaoh to Yep, that's what we're about to get into. Yeah, we're about to get into that. So, um, first thing that we're going to do is, um, the plagues start in Exodus 7. Let's, uh, you've not read all of the plagues yet, but you've read quite a few of them. Uh, let's get a good list. What is the first plague? The water turns to blood. Uh, yeah, the water turns to blood, and that happens in all the water vessels throughout Egypt, every, everywhere. What is the main body of water that turns to blood, though? Uh, the Nile, right? So um, I'm going to be a little bit more specific. The Nile turns to blood. It does mention that there's like cups of water in the Egyptian houses that also turn to blood. It's not just the Nile, but the Nile is really in focus in that story, right? Uh, that's where this plague takes place. Yes? Is it because does all other water and plastic cups and everything all over that could be it. Um, not necessarily, but that could be it. The, the Nile is the main water source, so so it might be. Um, that's a good thought. Uh, what's the second plague? Uh, yeah, <laughs> all these frogs just go everywhere, and then they all die at like the same time, and it gets really stinky. Like all right. Uh, what is the third plague? No, not the movie. Well, I can't hear. What's the third plague? The flies. The flies? The gnats. For me, it says flies. Gnats. Yeah. Um, probably gnats. Um, although, um, the Egypt has this... Um, or actually, no. It is, it is either gnats or lice, because what's the fourth plague? Um, flies. Flies. Good. Um, Probably gnats. It might also be referring to lice. Um, and, and then we have flies next. And this isn't flies like we think of flies. Um, Egypt has, in the Middle East, fly, there are these really big flies. Um, bigger than that. Yeah, quite a bit bigger than that. Um, and uh, if, they, if they bite you, they pack a punch. So these are, like, really not fun flies. They're like horse flies. Worse. Yeah, worse. Uh, what's number five? Focus in. What's number five? Uh, livestock die. Okay, livestock die. Six. Boils. Yeah. Um, big, uh, big, big, painful things pop up on your skin. Eventually pop, and that's even worse. Kind of like big. Think like really, really big blisters all over your body. Uh, what's number seven? Hell. Yeah, hell out of the sky. And, and what, is, um, what does hell do? 
Uh, if if uh, if you've got a field with crops, what will hell do whenever it falls? Yeah, uh, crops die. Uh, what is number eight? So any crops that survive uh, are going to be eaten up by the locust. So also crops die. Uh, number nine. Darkness. Good. And then I'm not going to put number ten down yet because it's big. Um, well, actually, we'll go ahead and do it. What's the tenth plague? Yeah, death of firstborn, and um, and this goes for people. It goes for livestock, um, and there's something else that goes with it too that we usually jump over. Okay, so um, something that we need to know is that these plagues are not random. To Abby's point a second ago. Each of them has a very, very specific purpose. The Egyptians worship a pantheon of gods. A pantheon is, uh, think, sort of like a council. They're polytheistic. They worship many, many, many gods. Everything that you do in your life, there's a different god that's kind of designated to it if you follow the Egyptian religion. And... Uh, people who comment on the book of Exodus for a very long time have recognized that each one of these plagues is aimed against a specific Egyptian god. And they get more serious as time goes on. So, the water turning to blood... By the way, for any of these, I'm, I'm going to give one of the Egyptian gods. Uh, any of them could be, like, at least three. There's a lot. Of, of Egyptian gods, like we're, we're talking dozens and dozens. So uh, we'll keep it kind of small, though. Um, the water turning to blood is probably aimed against the Egyptian god Hapi. Uh, Hapi is a uh, protector of the Nile. Um, the Nile River, if you guys know your geography, uh, is a very important source uh, of life in Egypt. It's their main body of water, their main river. Uh, the Nile is super important. No Nile, no Egypt. Okay? So, uh, Hopi is a god that the Egyptians worshipped because it was thought that Hopi protected the Nile from infection, uh, from running out of water, from, from those sorts of things. So you give honor to Hopi, you worship Hopi, and the Nile continues to give you water and continues to give you life. So what does it mean whenever the uh, Nile turns to blood? Can you drink blood? Is that a healthy thing to do? Uh, yeah, totally. It's nasty and it's not healthy. It often would carry disease. It would make you sick. And so whenever the Nile turns to blood, the Egyptians lose their water source. And what this is supposed to show the Egyptians, specifically Pharaoh. Remember, all of this is about Pharaoh has enslaved the people of God and will not let them go, even though God is saying, let my people go. What this is supposed to show Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians is that Hopi is not the one who's been giving them water. Hopi is not the one who's in control of the Nile River. The God of the Israelites is. And if they oppose Israel and they oppose their uh, Israel's God, things are going to go very badly for them. You could also think of this in a little bit of a more violent way. Um, when does blood get shed? When something? Um, Hopi is associated with the Nile. He lives in the Nile. Why did the Nile turn to blood? What did God do? Symbolically, right? Hopi is not real. But symbolically, what has God done to this God? Yeah. Killed him. This, this God is not God. The God of the Israelites is. God makes war on the Egyptian gods in the Exodus. Uh, the second one, uh, the plague of frogs, is uh, probably aimed against... Um, wait, hold on a minute. That's not right. Uh, it's probably aimed against Heck. Hecht is the Egyptian god of fertility, baby making, all right? Uh, frogs in Egyptian culture symbolize that because uh, any of you guys have a pool at home? Yeah. What? 
Do any of you have a swimming pool or do any of you have a friend that has a swimming pool? What happens if two frogs, what, what happens if frogs get in, two frogs get in there? Uh, simple. Nothing happens because I got a saltwater pool. It kills okay. babies. Yeah, if, uh, if you've got a pool at home and a couple frogs get in there, all right, and you're not careful, there's not going to be two frogs after a very long time. You're going to have, you know, dozens of tadpoles and then dozens of frogs. You ever seen a pool that's got frog infested? All right. Shh. All right. Uh, so the, um, the, the frogs symbolize fertility the giving of life, okay? Um, Hect, this Egyptian goddess, uh, looks like a frog. She looks like a lady with a big frog head. It's kind of gross, kind of creepy looking, right? Uh, and so, um, any of you guys watch Moon Knight, the, the, the Marvel yes. show? You know the hippo lady? Yes. So think hippo lady, but with a big frog head instead, all right? Uh, so... Um, Hecht is a god of fertility, uh, the god of frogs. Uh, is Hecht really in control of the frogs, though? No. Who is? God. God is. And then what happens to all the frogs at the end of the plague? They Yeah, and that would symbolize that who has died? Hecht. Hecht. Hecht is dead. But the living god of the Israelites is not. Uh, the lice, or the gnats... Uh, aim is aimed against the Egyptian god Seb. Seb is the god of the earth, and in Egyptian thought, gnats are very, very small, right? You guys have seen gnats fly around before. Gnats are very, very small. In Egyptian thought, gnats are created, like, out of dust. They don't, like, have sex and reproduce. In Egyptian thought, uh, dust just, like, sometimes turns into gnats. Um, and so, uh, the, or, or, or like if you have like loose dirt, like sand or something, in Egyptian thought, that's where gnats come from. Sometimes it just comes to life and then you have gnats. And so um, whenever all of these gnats, now is that true by the way? No. no. Okay, but this is the way Egyptians think. And so whenever this plague of gnats happens, it shows that Seb is not really the god of gnats. He's not really the god of earth. There's one god of earth. And, and, and that God is God of all the earth. And it is the God of the Israelites. Um, the plague of flies is a tribute. It is against Watchet. What are these names? Uh, Uachit is the fly god of Egypt. Uh with this plague, God makes a separation, by the way, between Goshen and Egypt. Uh, Goshen is the land where the Israelites live. Uh, Goshen is a land in Egypt that is set apart for the Israelites. And with this plague, these, uh, the rest of the plagues will not touch Goshen at all. It will only touch uh, the people of Egypt. Um, God summons flies and sends them against uh, all of the Egyptians, again, showing Uachit is not the one who's in control of this. The Lord God is. And I told you, these flies, they bite and they hurt really badly. God is inflicting now the uh, Egyptians themselves with a measure of pain. He doesn't kill them right off the bat, does he? But this is, this is an unpleasant thing. A sign of what is to come. He's making warfare against the Egyptian gods, but if they do not repent, he'll start making warfare against them too. Number five, uh, there's a disease that's put on livestock uh, and, um, and on the rest of uh, livestock and specifically on, on cattle. Um, this one is aimed against a number of, of different gods, but the one that I'll give you is um, Menabas. Uh, Menebus kind of looks like a cow, looks like a bull. She is a, a goddess of, 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 um, of fertility, once again, specifically for livestock. She kind of looks like a cow. Uh, and so, um, again, whenever the cattle die, it shows Menebus is not the one in control. And whenever the cows die, it's a symbol that their cow god has died as well. Not that she ever was actually alive, but she's definitely not now. Right. All right. You have a question? Oh, no, no. By the way, I wouldn't expect you to like reproduce all of these names on a test. I, I won't test you on that. Um, but I may ask 
something about God going to war against the Egyptian gods, and I want you to talk intelligibly about it. I don't expect you to have Hopi, Hekseb, Uracha, and Menevis memorized, um, but I would expect you to be able to tell me some important things about this. Uh, the Boils is named or, uh, is aimed against. Uh, I think that's how you spell it. Uh, the H, I think, is silent. Sekhmet. Um, she is the Egyptian goddess of health and medicine. Uh, Pharaoh's magicians uh, have been trying to match. You, you guys, have you, as you've read, you know that the magicians try to match Moses's miracles. With this plague, the magicians are so sick and in so much pain that they can't even show up to try to match Moses's plague. So uh, there is nothing that the wise men of Egypt can do to provide a cure or relief uh, for these boils. Yes? So in part, the um, wise men stuff, or the boils, like, Apparently not. Apparently there's some where the, uh, uh, the magicians can then go and do it themselves. So, um, yeah, I mean, the magicians do match uh, Moses sign for sign for a while. Moses, before the plagues even start, Moses throws his staff down and it turns into a snake. And the magicians can do that. And then they can do this one. They can do the thing with the frogs. Isn't it the gnats where they're like, oh, man, we can't do that? Which is really funny to me that that's like where they draw the line. Um, so, um, I'll make a case probably a little bit later in the semester. Well, I'll go ahead and say this. Um, whenever we get to the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there are two very important texts, um, for what we're covering right now. Um, and, and those texts teach that whenever Israel, the Israelites worship false gods, they're worshiping demons. It's not that false gods are on the same plane of existence as the one true God of Israel. He's the creator and everything else is creation. But uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy in very significant places, Leviticus 17.7 and Deuteronomy uh, 32.16 and 17, I think, um, will mention that whenever the Israelites engage in idolatry, they are engaged in demon worship. So I would make the case, if we had a little bit more time, I'd do this in more detail. I would make the case that all of the false gods that we're putting on the board right here are demons. And like the magicians are like worshiping demons? Yes. And, and that is how they're able to perform some of these signs. So, How do demons have that much power? I mean, in, throughout Scripture, demons are powerful. They're just nowhere near as powerful as God is, which I think is the point of these stories, right? Uh, these demons are trying to detract from the worship of God. They're trying to keep people in darkness. They're trying to worship is only rightly given to the one true living God. And these demons are trying to pull it away from God. Um, I, I think you could make a case that that is what's happening here. This is, we could say that this is God's war against the Egyptian gods, or you could say this is God's war against demonic powers. Do we have that idea in the New Testament, by the way, about demonic power? Yeah, absolutely, all over the place. Think about like Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God because you wrestle against the powers over this cosmic darkness. You know, um, you know that's a great text for it. Um, you know, Jesus throughout his earthly ministry is constantly interacting with demons and casting them out. Um, I think that's probably close to what's happening here. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about the gods of Greece and Rome. So like Zeus and Apollos, Jupiter, Aphrodite, things like that. And he says, whenever people worship those gods, they are sacrificing to demons. So um, Christianity is monotheistic. We believe that there is one true God, and he can only rightly be called God. But there are lesser spiritual powers, angels and demons, that also exist. And demons at times 
try to detract from the worship of God and elevate themselves as gods at time. They're not true gods, they're false gods, um, but they try to pull worship. Does that make sense? Yes. That's how I would understand it. Um, but God is like not a little bit more powerful than them in these stories. It's like straight up overkill <laughs> throughout these stories. Um, hmm? Yeah, smite, smite. Um, the plague of hail is aimed against two Egyptian gods. Um, one of them is named Nut, and Nut is the god of the sky. And then the other one is named against is aimed against Isis, who is the god of agriculture and uh, and crops. What? What Isis? Isis. Um, very separate from the Islamic extremist group. That's not where they're getting their name from. Uh, Isis for them is just an abbreviation. Um, Isis here uh, is the goddess of uh, crops. And so whenever the hell falls, it kills the Egyptian crops. Um, God is the one in control of the sky who is controlling weather. God is the one who is actually controlling the crops. Whenever the, uh, whenever the crops die, Isis has died. Um, the one against locusts is aimed against uh, Seraphia, who is the goddess of locusts. Uh, the one about darkness is aimed against the chief Egyptian god, the, the most powerful out of all of them, Ra. Uh, Ra is the sun god, and he is the main god that the Egyptians worship. You worship all of these gods if you are a good Egyptian, uh, but the one who stands over and above the rest, their leader, is Ra. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, think about him sort of like Zeus, right? All the others are kind of under his kingship. And so whenever God strikes the land with darkness in the middle of the day, the, the, maybe the sun stops shining, maybe there's a very prolonged eclipse, maybe it's just very hazy, maybe it's something else entirely. They say that it's a darkness that you can feel. You ever been in a place that's so dark that you feel like claustrophobic? Yes. That's what Egypt feels like in the middle of the day. And again, it's showing, um, it's almost like God has killed the sun, right? It's almost like the sun can't, has no life anymore. And so God... Uh, has done war and is victorious over Raw. And then you have the death of the firstborn. Um, and we'll talk about the death of the firstborn in more detail tomorrow. What is the... Um, there's a religious holiday associated with this plague. Passover. Passover, right? So um, all of the firstborn of the land of Egypt die, but none of the firstborn of Israel dies because Israel celebrates the Passover and puts the blood on the doorpost and the angel of death passes over them. And then a little bit later on, this plague happens. Pharaoh says, get out of here. And the Israelites begin to leave. And then the Israelites come to a big body of water called the Red Sea. And the Egyptians change their mind, and Pharaoh pursues them to the Red Sea, and they're stuck between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. What does God do? Splits the water, and Israel walks through on dry ground, uh, and they, the word that is used is that they pass over the Red Sea. So the Red Sea event is part of this plague. What happens to Pharaoh, by the way? He gets killed just like the firstborn did. So um, this, we need to take these together. Um, the, the language is the same. Israel is passed over by the angel of death, and then they pass over the Red Sea. The firstborn dies, and then Pharaoh dies. Pharaoh in Egyptian religion was considered a god. He was worshipped like a god. So the... Uh, 10th plague is aimed against Pharaoh. Pharaoh cannot protect his heir. His son would become Pharaoh after him, and his son dies. He can't protect him. He's not powerful enough to do that. And on top of that, Pharaoh is considered the firstborn son. Anybody want to guess? Of Ra. So 
as the firstborn son of Ra, Pharaoh also has to die in this plague. Uh, the tenth plague happens at night, but there is some time between the two, I think. I'm pretty sure there is. Um, yeah, because there's a threat of the tenth plague before um, before it actually takes place. I, th- I think there's a little bit of a time gap. Um, let's see. It might be like a day. It might actually happen the night of the 10th plague. So the 10th the plague begins at midnight. So the ninth plague happens throughout the day. It's dark in the middle of the day. And then um, the 10th um, the plague starts at midnight. Uh, so there's at least the time gap of, of like several hours between it. Um, yeah, I think it's the same day as the ninth plague, but it's not necessarily at the exact same time. So. And like the darkness goes Abby. Yep. Um. Would, so during the like the darkness plague, would the like would so the sun was completely blocked out, but would like God, like they had candles, would like God like I don't know make those not work? So would they have like that as the light source, or would they have like nothing? The way that I would understand it is. Um, it's talking about how this darkness is so dark you can feel it. Have you ever been in a room that is so dark that you like light a candle in it and it almost feels like the darkness is pushing in on the light? Yeah. I would understand it like that. Like you can see the light, but it's almost not helping, right? Uh, it is, it's a heavy darkness. So, um, so let's, um, let's talk about this in a little bit more detail. We get this idea. Yes. Goshen still has light where the Israelites are. Something miraculous is happening. The text doesn't give us a lot of details. So you can kind of use your imagination, but at the end of the day, um, you've just got to kind of understand that it, it, it was a little bit hard for Moses to put it into words, what happened. And so it's going to be a little bit hard for us to wrap our minds around. Um, At the end of all of this, after they come out on the other side of the Red Sea, Moses is going to write a song. And um, this is part of the song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So Moses understands uh, the Exodus to be war. He understands it to have been a battle that God has won. And it's a battle primarily against the gods of Egypt, showing that they are no gods at all, but also a battle against Pharaoh and the people who had been oppressing them. All right. Let's talk about this in relationship to the gospel. In the gospel, like in the Exodus, God's people have been enslaved. We have a taskmaster over us, and his name is Satan. Open to Hebrews chapter 2 in the New Testament. Chapter 2. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14, is talking about the Lord Jesus and says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
So, the author of Hebrews explains the salvation that we have in the gospel in light of the Exodus story. This would be a really good test question for the next one, by the way. The people of Israel in the Exodus story were enslaved, and who were they enslaved to specifically? Who was, who was their master? Pharaoh. And Pharaoh made them do hard work, make bricks without straw. In the same way, in the gospel, you and I were all enslaved, and we were enslaved to someone worse than Pharaoh. It says in Hebrews 2, who are we enslaved to? Satan. Satan, the devil. A spiritual Pharaoh. And the devil had a terrible work for us to do. We were enslaved not only to the devil, but the scriptures also talk about how human, human beings are enslaved to sin. The work that the devil had us to do was to sin. And he kept us in bondage through fear, the fear of death, the power of death. Just as Pharaoh kept the Israelites enslaved through fear. If we rebel against Pharaoh, he's going to get us. He'll make things even worse. But the good news of the Exodus was that God was a warrior, and God struck Pharaoh down and struck the gods of Pharaoh down. God went to war and rescued his people. And in Hebrews 2, it talks about the work of Jesus by saying that through Jesus' death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. God went to war against Egypt and their gods, and in the gospel, Jesus wars and doesn't just defeat, but destroys Satan. 1 John chapter 3 says that the Son of God came into the world for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2 says that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and put them to open shame and triumphed over them. In the gospel, Jesus goes to war against sin and death and Satan. In the gospel, the seed of the woman comes and crushes the serpent's head and shame and guilt and all the things that had kept God's people in bondage are taken away. You and I have an Exodus story if we've believed the gospel, just like the Israelites did. Enslaved to sin with a cruel taskmaster over us, but God raised up a deliverer who went to war on our behalf and defeated these things that were holding us in bondage and then led us out of slavery to sin and death and Satan and gave us freedom as children of God. Questions on that? Very important theme in the New Testament. The, the New Testament likes explaining the gospel in light of the Exodus. Okay. Just as God went to war against Happy and Hecht and Seb, Jesus has gone to war against the devil. And he struck and destroyed him so that his people can be free from their bondage. Um... In the Exodus story, God would send a plague, and what would Pharaoh's response be after the plague? Yeah, Pharaoh does that quite a bit, doesn't he? He, he says... Um, in this plague, and then yes, I will let your people go and worship their God. He does that who knows how many times. Um, several times. And then what happens? Does he actually let them go? Eventually, yes. Well, even then, what does he do? 
changes his mind and goes after him. So he will say, yes, I'll let them go. But then something happens to Pharaoh and he winds up not letting them go. What happens to him? Yeah, there's two phrases used throughout the plague story. At times in your reading, you've seen it said that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Does it say this at times? Pharaoh hardens his own heart? Yeah, it does. About half the time it says that. Half the time it says something else. God hardened his heart. What does that mean? What does it mean to have a hardened heart? And what does it mean that God hardens his heart? What does it mean to have a hard heart or a hardened heart? What does that mean? Pharaoh says, I'm going to let them go, and then his heart is hardened, and then he says, no, I won't. To be stubborn. Okay. To what? Okay. So, is this what's happening? The plagues happen, and Pharaoh finally comes around and says, yeah, Israel's God is the true God. I'm going to let them go. And then God says, oh, no, you don't. And God reaches down into Pharaoh's heart and turns the sin dial up. And then Pharaoh says, well, no, I'm actually not going to. Is God making Pharaoh do something evil that Pharaoh would not otherwise do? No. Okay. Well, sometimes he hardens his own heart, and sometimes who has to harden his heart? Okay. Here's how I think you should understand this. Half the time, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Half the time, God hardens his heart. Here's what I think has happened. Deep down inside, does Pharaoh want to let Israel go? No. Absolutely not. He wants them to remain his slaves. Free labor, right? Deep down inside, he wants to keep them there. So the plagues happen and Pharaoh's life gets hard and Pharaoh reluctantly says, okay, I'll let them go. But at times after saying that and after the plague has stopped, Pharaoh's desire wells back up in his heart and he says, I really don't want to do that. So he doesn't let them go. I think that's what it means when Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Deep down inside, he wants to make them stay. Things got hard, though, so reluctantly he says, I'll let them go. But then he says, I'm not not really willing to do that. At other times, the plague makes life hard, and Pharaoh says, I'm going to let them go. Again, is he doing that sincerely? He's doing it with reluctance. It's not what he truly wants. And what it means that God hardens his heart is this, I think. I think that whenever God hardens Pharaoh's heart, God's not needing to reach down and make Pharaoh more sinful than Pharaoh already is. I don't think God needs to do that. You know why? Because the devil's already doing that. I don't even know if if the devil needs to do that. What is Pharaoh? Sinful. Evil. Pharaoh has enough sin in his heart as it is. God doesn't need to crank the dial up. Whenever it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, though, what I think is happening is there's a conversation that we're going to look at later in Scripture. There's a a false prophet named Balaam. And Balaam is asked by the king of Moab, whose name is Balak, to go and curse Israel. And Balaam originally says, no, I'm not going to do that. And the king says, well, if you do it, I'll give you a whole bunch of money. I'll make you rich. And Balaam goes, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stay home. And God appears to Balaam and says, Balaam, you want to go. And Balaam goes, yes, I do. Now, is it good for him to go curse Israel? No. No. Why does he want to go? What's he going to get? Money. Money. And so through this conversation between God and Balaam in the book of Numbers, God basically, what God does is he hands Balaam over to his own desires. 
in Balaam's heart of hearts, he wants to go and sin because it's going to make him rich. And what I think it means for God to harden Balaam, and what I think it means for God to harden Pharaoh, is that, okay, um, come here real quick. I want you, you guys seen before where um, in sports, turn that way, somebody will put like an elastic band on somebody and hold them back as they try to run over there. You've seen that, that exercise before. It helps them deal with speed and agility. All right, let's say that I'm, I've got that elastic band and I'm pulling Jeremiah, all right? Run in place for a second, don't move, all right? Jeremiah is running as hard as he can, but I'm pulling him back, I'm, I'm withholding him. I'm not letting him do what he wants to do. He wants to run straight into the wall, and I'm not letting him do it. I'm pulling him back, I'm holding him. Now, if I were to let go, all right, Jeremiah runs straight into the wall head first, like he wants to do. All right, you can sit down. Okay, I think whenever it, it's talking about God hardening a heart, that's what's happening. Pharaoh wants to sin, and God has sent these plagues and disciplined him, and Pharaoh reluctantly says, I'll do what's right and let them go. But God doesn't hold Pharaoh back. What Pharaoh really wants to do is Pharaoh wants to rebel against God and sin and keep them in slavery, and God says, do what you want. Romans chapter 1 explains hardening in that way. God makes his truth about himself and the gospel clear. And people throw the truth away and decide to worship idols. And it says God hands them over to their idolatry. And then the people start pursuing immorality. And God hands them over to their own immorality. He lets them do what they truly want to do. He doesn't hold them back. I think that's what it means when God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What Pharaoh really wants to do, God lets him do. I don't think that God is reaching down, turning the sin dial up. He doesn't need to do that. He doesn't do that. I think instead he's letting Pharaoh pursue the sinfulness that Pharaoh wants to pursue. So, tomorrow we need to talk about this Passover event. Um, and we, we need to continue to keep an eye out for this weird figure called the angel of the Lord. Um, he's going to show up several more times. And as we keep going throughout the semester, we need to get a good idea of who this angel of the Lord is. Uh, we've got a few more stories that we're going to see that involve him. Uh, for tonight's reading, you are going to read Exodus 9 through... 12. Exodus 9 through 12. So, come back tomorrow and we will talk about the Passover.